You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, where we share our experiences, the ups and the downs of what it's like to be a rules-based investor. And of course, where we also take uh, your questions. Um, and as usual, let me start by saying good morning to you, Jerry, and good afternoon to you, Moritz. Hello, gents. How are you? Good morning. Good afternoon. Very well. Thanks very well. Um, so a week which I think was mainly about the bonds and fixed income markets in general, at least when I look at kind of our PL that stood out. Um, but we did see some decent moves in gasoline and nat gas and palladium on the upside and, and wheat, sugar and silver were kind of the, the leaders to the downside this week, um, at least uh, in the markets that I keep an eye on. So uh, why don't we jump into it, uh, Moritz, and see what how it all played out um, for you this week? Yeah, it played out just like you said. Um, summing it up, it's been another bad week, really. Um, quite bad, minus 3%, roughly. And um, so yeah, the bonds that didn't work um, got quite a few signals, actually. Um, got shorter in Aussie dollars and Canadian dollars and euros and yen versus the US dollar, a little bit less short in the equities. So uh, for instance, the Kakara changed from short to long, as did the FTSE and the spies in Australia. Um, and some, you know, changes which, you know, looked at was, oh, that's interesting. So, you know, it used to be long gold and long silver, and those are now slight shorts. Um, and, um, you know, WTI, generally the, the energy markets, um, still a bit short, but uh, getting longer and longer there. Um, so yeah, that was the week, but I'm, I'm just, you know, craving for, for a turnaround now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I think we, well, we probably all are to some extent. I, I, um, you know, I, uh, I certainly saw the same, uh, for us also, uh, a, a bit of a, a down week, um, not too bad though, but, uh, still, you know, the, uh, fixed income markets were the main, uh, culprit this week. Um, and what we did see some positives, uh, in particular in the grains, grains did, uh, well for us, um, energy did okay. Um, but the single uh, best market for the week was the yen, uh, so we did all right uh, on that side. But we couldn't quite um, it couldn't quite overcome the negatives uh, coming from the rising yields in the uh, fixed income markets. Um, theme wise, exposure wise, I think the only change we've seen recently is this kind of gradual move from being short uh, equities across the board. Now we're kind of slightly positive on an aggregate aggregate basis, but but with mixed positions, but uh, you know, there's certainly been a recovery um, in in equity markets, which are being reflected as they should be uh, in the way the models are picking that uh, those trends up. So, uh, so that's I think is the only sort of change in terms of uh, theme on on our side. Um, what about you, Jerry? I mean, uh, single stocks are always interesting, but it could be some other markets that has had an impact this week. Sure, we you know continue to add a little bit all the time to our long single stocks and reducing uh, slightly some of the shorts. It's 
That's so much fun to <clears throat> see the stock market in those terms and not uh, the indexes. And so it's um, always trimming and adding. And unlike the currencies where I th we're pretty much 100% short, I uh, was able to hold on to about half my yen short through the big rally. Um, but in the stocks, it's lots of longs, lots of shorts, lots of flats. So it's much more diversification than I'm getting from some of the other well interest rates and currencies. Um, <clears throat> very fun to watch uh, the grain, wheats and canola kind of crash. And that uh, short, trying to be patient uh, with those. And, you know, I like to see that. Yeah, we're holding in there in the dollar, but I'd like to see some crashes like that, like I saw in canola and wheat. Uh, that'd be fun, funner. Yeah. Uh, nice to see that silver and gold turn around. Sorry about that. I never quite got long. Um, I did get run out of my shorts at the high. So <clears throat> I don't know if, what that means, but um, still enjoying platinum and, and uh, cattle. They're the and emissions. I don't know if you guys trade the European emissions, but we do. And that's those three are just uh, the best longs that I have. Did trade the emissions? They have been um, they have been volatile the past couple of weeks. I mean, they had those very very nice um, turn to the upside. I think until last year in October, and then you know plateaued a little bit. Just you know became range bound, but very volatile market. Um, also still still long that market. I think in the last week it uh, moved up a bit. So that was good. Yeah, and um, we we don't participate in in those markets. So um, but it's. Uh... Clearly, definitely a differentiator uh, when you look at performance uh, among seemingly uh, similar trend followers that, I mean, you get a lot of uh, return dispersion, dispersion from the fact that we obviously don't all trade the same market. So uh, definitely worth keeping an eye on, uh, especially for those investors who um, are sort of doing their due diligence on managers, where are the returns actually coming from. Um, now... There are lots of questions. We want to get to Jerry's top tweets uh, since we didn't do so many last week with Mep. But what a great, uh, what a great interview with him. Uh, even if I say so myself, I mean he just builds so much uh, value. I think on uh, last week's episode. So if you missed that one, um, I would encourage you to go back and listen to episode uh, twenty-four with Mep uh, Faber. Um, but there are also some. Uh, interesting articles that I'm sure we would want to comment on. So uh, should we do Jerry's tweets first and then take articles and questions at the same time? Does that make sense? Sure. Great. Well, social media land. How did that pan out this week? Way too many things to talk about this week. Going to have to cut it <laughs> short. Uh, very prolific. You know, I copy paste. So there's a lot of good writing, according to me out there this week that I enjoyed and uh, not shying away from uh, the things that I read that didn't make trend following. It doesn't make trend following look great. <clears throat> so we got lots, lots going on, but we'll try to limit it uh, to the most popular, at least. Um, now, you know, the first one is uh, from Forbes magazine, and um, this got the most attention, I suppose. Uh, what makes greatness is failing fast, not losing too much. What repeatedly, but repeatedly getting up to bat and making the solid swing. The way to build superior long-term returns is through preservation of capital and home runs. Um, 
So, you know, that is a typical uh, tweet of mine. It's going to get a lot of love because it's, you know, encouraging all of the, my 18,000 followers who a lot of those are, are suffering like we are with trend following. So they love to be built up and uh, given encouragement. And, uh, but I think the last sentence is pretty um, interesting in that, uh, you know, no one really wants a lot of strikeouts and then home runs. <clears throat> That's really not how we're built to enjoy life. And we've been getting a lot of strikeouts mostly recently, but I think that that formula, you know, has proven to be successful in trading and in lots of um, walks of life. And uh, it, it is very frustrating, and yet that's maybe one of the reasons it works. But um, taking small profits is probably not something that uh, we should aspire to. No, I mean, there's no doubt that it's uh, something that has proven its worth over over many decades, but I agree with you. I mean, uh, part of the reason, and I think that's, you know, maybe something we also touched upon with MIP uh, last week was the fact that it's a difficult strategy to hold. Maybe it hasn't even been marketed very well, according to him, but um, it's a difficult strategy to hold. And I think that's definitely the secret to why it works. Anything that gets too popular seems to uh, lose its uh, grace. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, when you look back in history, there's going to be uh, many periods of time where any strategy for that matter doesn't work. I mean, clearly we've all forgotten the, the uh, you know, the 10 years of zero return in, in equities in the US. But if we go further and, and we expand, we look at other markets and other countries, I mean, their equity markets have had yielded no returns for much longer periods of time. But when it comes to trend following, people like to remind us that, you know, it's about time to make some some kind of return. What about you, Moritz? I like the analogy. That's what we do. Lots of strikeouts um, and um, more, more rare home runs. I mean, think about a baseball game, how boring it would be to watch such a game where it's just, you know, strikeouts, 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 really nothing happening. People want the action, right? They want to see something and, you know, stuff going on. Um, you know, that's just not, not the way we trade. No. It's funny you say that because um, that's exactly what's happening in, uh, in baseball in America. The quants and Analytics has gotten a hold of baseball, and last year, I think for the first time, there were more strikeouts than hits. <clears throat> so even the uh, this sort of uh, idea has bled over into sports mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, launch angle and all of these new fangled ways of looking at baseball hitters, <clears throat> uh, there's never been more strikeouts, never been more home runs. <clears throat> so it, it is boring, and nobody, nobody likes it in baseball, no one likes it in uh, yeah. trading investing and so there you have it it's the best thing and it works and no one likes it yeah yeah that's the reason why it works what else got some attention this week jerry well i'll uh, pass on the bloomberg article until we're yeah, we'll take all that ready to, to do that one um <clears throat> let's see here uh well uh one i just tweeted like yesterday or so um Got a lot of uh, attention. It's uh, Meb Faber uh, interviewing Marty from Dunn, and Marty describes that trend following is pretty basic, but there's magic in how you develop a portfolio with the strategy. And I really like that because I think that particular magic um, <clears throat> is underreported or 
underappreciated that uh, although I do put a great deal of importance on entries and exits and things like that, uh, I think the way we set up our portfolios within uh, how we <clears throat> try to, in my case, uh, try to maximize the diversification with the right amount of single stocks and currencies, commodities, and interest rates is something I'm working on all the time to un get a deeper understanding and knowledge, uh, especially breaking away from the way I used to trade, uh, where, you know, like I said, in 1990, I made 30% in December, 30% for the year, and 30% in that heating oil trade in December. So that is not something you want to do. I mean, making 30%, you do want to do, but not the way that I did it. Uh, <clears throat> so I've evolved into, you know, hundreds of little positions. But still, you know, like I said earlier, I'm not happy when I'm short all the currencies. I mean, is that right? And, and in what percentage of my portfolio is currencies? It sounds like it shouldn't be that much, but it is. It is probably a little bit too much. So, and interest rates, I'm all, I'm long, all the bonds. Uh, I, I like the stocks. They're, I'm long some, I'm short some, but I don't know how many am I short and what are they going to do when the market crashes, when, the, when that diversification, which looks wonderful now, goes to kind of like one. My short, my longs will be down how many percent more, two or three times more than my shorts. So this puzzle and this magic that he talks about is a very important for the CTAs. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, definitely Marty is, is right about that. And of course, I would say that since I work for him. But uh, but other than that, I would say what, what you're addressing, uh, Jerry, is, is quite important. And I wonder whether this is to do with the fact that in the old days, the economies of the world were not as coordinated as they are today. So maybe back in the 70s and the 80s, when you were looking at, at these different markets, you know, the correlation between them were a lot lower than they are today. Um, but clearly nowadays, and you're absolutely right, I mean, you can, we often see situations where um, we end up being, you know, fully long bonds across the board or, or in the currencies where either long or short the dollar and, and equities. But then I want to say, you know, looking at last year, though, last year was a very different year. So even though we've had more coordination between uh, economies and and central banks, last year, certainly on our side, we had very diversified positions within equities and within uh, fixed income. Um, at very, you know, few, few uh, a little of the time last year, we were fully long or fully short. I mean, for the most part, we were, you know, in fixed income, we were short US and long Europe and and in equities, it was kind of the reverse. So, uh, so yeah. So I mean, so even though they can seem incredibly correlated at times, and you're kind of wondering, is this right? Um, there are still some times where, where it doesn't quite pan out like that. That's right. I mean, 1987, silver doubled and gold went up a few bucks. And yeah, sure. More than more than once, it was twice. The first big turtle trade, Fab heating oil, 1984, it doubled. It went from 50 cents to a buck crude. And, and, and uh, we, I don't think there was an unleaded contract at the time. Right. There may not have been a crude contract, actually. So, uh, <clears throat> but then there was another time, 1990, which I've already spoken about. It uh, doubled and then crude yeah. kind of sat there. So you're right. 90% of the time, uh, silver, platinum, well, silver, platinum, and gold have an 80 some percent correlation at least. Same with crude, unleaded, and heating oil. And then they don't. 
So what yeah. are you going to do? <laughs> Very true. I mean, you can add, I mean, uh, we've certainly looked at other markets to add that are less correlated within fixed income, within equities, et cetera, et cetera. But um, yeah, I mean, on the other hand, we I think we we like to have a, a maybe a smaller portfolio of markets compared with other managers who trade 200, 300 markets. We tend to be much, much uh, more focused uh, than that, but still get full sort of exposure to all the sectors. Any any thoughts on this, uh, Moritz, before we go on? I like trading all of those. <clears throat> I think it makes sense to um, to add markets to the portfolio, you know, speaking about that magic, um, which Marty was referring to, I, I like that. You know, I like looking at the portfolio with all its ingredients, all the markets, all the moving components, you know, things that go on. Um, you know, thinking carefully about, you know, adding markets, um, looking carefully about the correlations between markets, um, all of that. And um, yeah, I mean, just just like you said, Niels, yesterday, uh, last year was a good example. I also remember being uh, short the US markets on the bond side, um, long most of the European bonds still and the JGBs. Then it changed again. Then we went long the US bonds and like that, made money from that. Um, it it is it is just a uh, you know byproduct of those markets that you know every once in a while those correlations that you know you've observed in the past they don't hold and you get a different set of positions in the portfolio um, and that's important. Yeah, I mean, I would just add to that before we move on, and then that is that you know clearly there's been a time after the financial crisis where a lot of the central banks were very very coordinated to some extent at least mm. in terms of their policies right but i think that's changing right we have very different situations now in the us in europe and japan and i think over time you know this could lead to much more um, divergence in in terms of central bank policy and therefore the market so so i don't i wouldn't give up completely on uh, <laughs> on our portfolios as they are right now no and uh, neither do i i just you know when i look at um, you know, you read all those articles in the media about the state of the markets and the economies and what, you know, countries could be going into recession and uh, which ones don't. I mean, I think there's always something going on, even if mm. economies are running swimmingly and everything is like blue skies, uh, you will read uh, in the media about, you know, cloudy skies and, you know, risks ahead and, you know, this could go wrong and that could go wrong. Um, nobody of us knows that. We, we just are, all of us are unable to forecast the macro side of things, right? It's just not what we do. And then, you know, right now, you know, I feel that there's this massive concentration about, you know, people speaking about risks coming from Brexit, you know, coming from China being, you know, maybe over levered, um, having problems with the yuan. Then there's, uh, you know, countries going into recession, maybe, you know, Europe is starting that. Um, Australia may be already in a recession. You know, I mean, there's, there's always something going on. Um, we're just unable, I'm a, definitely unable uh, to forecast anything on the macro side. I just have no idea what's going to happen. Definitely not, um, you know, within the next couple of months, anything can happen. So I need to stay as diversified as I can, as risk controlled as I can. Um, given the uh, given the environment, and you know, sometimes it plays out that way, sometimes it plays out another way. But the systems that we have, they can cope with, and hopefully can cope with, whatever you know, deck of cards we're dealt. Sure, I agree. There were so many 
<clears throat> tweets I read this week and where people are just like uh, talking their position, you know, like uh, here are all the negatives about the stock market. Uh, people are totally worried. They should be worried and concerned. And I'm like, yeah, well, that's great. Cause I think, you know, uh, having that climbing that wall of worry is great. I think it's fantastic. And I don't know what it is about us, but I think, you know, the trend follower mentality, I mean, definitely we kind of root for our positions and I, you know, I'm hoping that they're going to continue, but not in sort of an intellectual way where I am invested in, you know, in some sort of other knowledge other than the trend to where my sort of self-worth as a human is like, I've analyzed this, I've seen all of these issues that Moritz mentioned, plus a slowing economy and this number and that number, GDP, farm, payroll, whatever those things are. And then uh, it's kind of like, he wants feedback. He wants, okay, yeah, I agree with you, you know, and, and, and somehow this is supposed to help. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's just really interesting that uh, people, and then the next tweet will be, you know, no one can predict. Well, you just predicted. So <laughs> it's, we're, we, I think our stress level is high based upon performance, but incredibly low um, when it comes to uh, having to uh, figure out what we should do next. You know, we kind of know exactly what we should do next. Not that it's going to work, but we're not confused. And I think getting wrapped up in some of these fundamental viewpoints and uh, really investing your self-worth into them, it's got to be very destabilizing. I mean, I agree with that. And it's interesting you bring that up about, you know, how people, you know, may feel confused at this stage and so on and so forth. I mean, just go back 10 years during the financial crisis, that's when people were really confused and had absolutely no clue what to do and where it, you know, had big implications, uh, you know, what directions your investments were. Um, so even after 10 years of, of sort of, the world keeping it uh, or holding it together. Um, there, I think you're right. I think there are actually a, quite a high stress level uh, among many investors, and it's it's a shame because in many respects, I truly believe you can build both safer and better performing portfolios just by you know being sensible uh, and logical about your uh, overall asset allocation and where you don't have to worry too much. I mean, let us do the hard work. Uh, in in terms of you know our strategy and other people do their the hard work when it comes to the nitty gritty of, of of their strategy. But from an investor point of view, I think there are really good opportunities today to build uh, pretty robust portfolios uh, overall. Yeah. Also, one thing I, I just want to add that it, sometimes you know, and I enjoy you know reading the media and you know getting getting you know a report on the state of the markets and what people think and. You know, I'm I'm not a part of uh, that opinion contest, but every once in a while, they then interview managers and you know discretionary managers, macro managers say, and they're being asked, "What was your um, the greatest failure?" And then they go like, "Oh well, in 2012, I called you know ABC wrong," and it's kind of like you know they, it's 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 that chip on their shoulder. There, it's it's a mark really bad. They got it wrong in this year, and it's kind of like they they have to remember that and live with that. And I go, well, you know what? I'm I'm failing all the time. Like my specialty is failing. Like I'm the master of failure. It's it's just, you know, those things fail, the trades fail, a month fails, a quarter fails, um, many subsequent trades fail. And so what? But the key to all of that, Mort, is that, that trend following systems fail fast. And that's the yeah. key. I mean, uh, when you uh 
when you listen to, if we go outside our world and you just listen to a lot of these really successful people in other businesses and you often hear them on podcast or or whatever interviews and, and they ask about, you know, what are some of the best advice that you can give is, is really the importance of failing. I mean, there's no doubt it is important in what we do to fail and fail well and fail fast. Exactly. Great failures. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Jared, you have another one that uh, received a lot of love? Yes. Uh, and this is uh, following up on what we just got finished talking about in the first one with strikeouts and home runs. So, going a little bit deeper on that idea, this was one that um, I came up with on my own, but it, it was, I was <clears throat> inspired by another one. So, uh, mo- it says uh, most of the time one can easily recover from a type one era, which is an unsuccessful attempt. A bad trade. We have a stop loss, but it's harder to recover from a type two era, which is not taking a trade, not doing something that might have had a positive outcome uh, because they can become incredibly positive outliers. So once again, nothing more important than doing the trade, do the entry. Uh, when I first started my first week of trading, you know, I, my Rich, Richard Dennis calls me up and he says, well, how many trades did you do this week? And I said, like, probably like five. And he goes, well, how many do you think you should have done? I'm like, probably 20. It was, uh, he was like, yeah, yeah, you know. I mean, that's like the first rule. Just do the trade. You're going to miss these outliers. So it's bad to get the strikeouts, but nothing is worse than having a systematic approach that you don't implement or that you're kind of get timid or one that filters you out, quote unquote, of a trade that ends up being a big, huge home run. So nothing more important than uh, <clears throat> we're – uh, in another tweet, also, I commented that um, you put a trade on only to have to take a loss. You can avoid that by not doing the trade, but if you don't do the trade, you're going to miss the big outliers. And then I wrote uh, hashtag asymmetry. You know, it's just not a good bet. Every time we look at a decision, we have this amazing backstop, the small loss. Yes, I'll do it. It's a small loss. Worst case, small loss. And I mean, you know, that is just quite an advantage if you have that mentality. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's it's so true, and and it's funny because uh, if and I don't know whether this is a a good analogy or not. Probably isn't, but anyways, humans often take those bets in their own, like they play the lotto, whatever, because yeah, it's just just ten dollars we pay. But what if we win? You know. $500 million or whatever it is in the U.S. with these big payouts. I mean, there's, you know, that's that's the thing. But anyways. Morris, anything you want to add? I like I like that particular tweet. And I think retweeted it. Um, everything there is correct. But I would just uh, say that I left off one interesting idea, which is that if we're talking about money, then everyone agrees, right? Oh, yeah, mm. I agree. But it's not always about money. It's about, oh, crap, I was wrong. Yeah. That is a lot yeah. for me to handle. So once again, get into trend following. Maybe after a few years, you'll it'll become the money, the betting and uh, strategy versus uh, your sort of self-esteem, you know, 40% winning trades. Our self-esteem cannot be too high as far as prediction goes. Um, but I'd like to end, if we're going to end on this one, um, <clears throat> let's see if I can find it. Oh, yeah. Now, I really like this. And I always like to read about value investing and fundamental 
and uh, traditional non-trend technical trading uh, from smart people who've made lots of money. And just to sort of understand and um, <clears throat> the differences. And once again, uh, this comes from a very famous person, um, Charlie Munger, you know, the, the second yep. most famous American uh, in investment. <laughs> okay, so he says, uh, quote, the whole secret of investment is to find places where it's safe and wise to non-diversify. It's just that simple, unquote. Wow, now, you know, that's really amazing quote because I really love that we're on opposite points of view on that. And I feel sorry for those guys who have to trade that way or ma manage money that way because it probably does work for them that, you know, idea 10, a fundamental value idea, uh, number 10, it probably may not work as well as number one or two or three. So there really is a problem. Uh, I mean, I haven't done the analysis. I assume they have. And uh, so they don't need, they really do see a problem with diversifying. But I wrote uh, for systematic strategies, all markets and trades have the same expectation. Uh, they don't suffer from over diversification like value, etc. So being able to craft a portfolio of longs and shorts and diverse uh, markets uh, that a systematic strategy allows, you know, you don't have this issue of over diversification, you can uh, under diversify by trading crude, heating oil, unleaded, the same size as uh, cotton, you know, I wouldn't really recommend that. But I've done it, but I don't think I was correct in doing it. And so one of the most profound things about trend following and systematic strategies, you know, is the, the trades, um, they're all, they all have the same expectation. I mean, that's certainly what our research shows. I mean, which is why we treat all markets equal. I mean, whether it's, you know, live cattle or um, the dollar yen, I mean, we treat them from a risk point of view equal. Um, now, clearly, there's going to be periods of time where one sector um, and, 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 you know, and, and, and maybe one market is not really adding value at all to the portfolio. And you're kind of thinking, well, maybe I'm wrong. But when, when we talk about um, we have the same return expectation for all markets, we're, we're thinking, you know, 20, 30, 40 or over that long period of, of time. Um, so, but we completely agree uh, with you, Jerry. Interesting stuff. Uh, Mort, do you want to add anything before we jump into some questions? I think this, uh, we say this and we believe this, the markets have, you know, the trades have the same expectation and that's absolutely true. I think, you know, maybe, maybe I need to bring this up with investors. I think people have problems understanding that when we say like, maybe not the listeners, but I think in general, if, you know, you're the investment manager, you're speaking to a client and you tell them, we think our trades, everything we do has the same expectation, they will probably go like, what? I mean, you, you need to have preferences. You need to be able to say that you're now in an environment where, you know, this works better than the other, or, you know, one market works better than the other consistently. But but we're not doing that. So I'm, I always have that in the back of my, uh, my head that I want to get into... Um, bit more, you know, detailed conversation uh, uh, on that also with clients, because it, it really, it is a strong underpinning of how we trade. And I followed it up with another tweet that was uh, so maybe diversification is, quote, the only free lunch in finance, unquote, which is reduced risk at no loss in returns, mm -hmm. only when it's used with trend following. 
Sorry about that. <laughs> but you know, if adding diversification to your portfolio, a value manager, if he sees <clears throat> reduction in return on his eighth, ninth, and tenth idea, bummer. You know, uh, mm -hmm. come over to where we are, and there is no reduction in uh, return, only reduction in risk. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, agreed. Uh, okay, let's uh, kick this off. I hope we can get through all the questions today. Otherwise, we will, of course, keep them for next week. Um, and by the way, keep uh, sending us your questions uh, to info at toptradersonplug.com. Um, we love to uh, be able to answer these. Um, first question today is from Carl. Carl has a very short question. He asks, where would you start from an individual trader standpoint? So I'm not entirely sure what you mean, Carl, whether you're thinking about becoming a trend follower. So I think that's probably what we should uh, assume. Um, so I don't know if uh, any of you want to kick it off in terms of where to start if you want to become a trend follower uh, in today's world. <clears throat> well, to start, um, start with data. Um, find a good source of market data. That's important. Uh, there's a couple of really good ones around which um, don't cost that much. And um, download that data. I recommend you know starting with Excel. There's no need to uh, become you know heavy in the programming. Keep it simple when you start. Um, develop a you know simple if I may say that, trend-following system, maybe work with moving averages or breakouts, and just get a feel for, you know, how you need to build that, how that works when you add more and more markets together and how it behaves. Um, I think when you when you do that, of course, there's, you know, tons of things that you can read. The internet is full of uh, good things on trend-following. It is really, you know, the concepts behind trend following are not a secret. They they can be found. And um, and then it's, you know, it's a question of uh, finding your own, your own magic, your own system that works for you, where you feel comfortable, you know, being able to follow it, to trade it, and uh, hold on to it, um, which at the end of the day is the most important thing. That's right. Um, <clears throat> and then once you get into it, uh... You can be able to hold on to it a lot easier if you trade moderate size and don't trade too large. Uh, been there, done that. So, but yeah, I think Excel, one of the greatest inventions of all time, putting up yes. charts, uh, weekly charts possibly, and putting breakouts around some weekly charts to sort of uh, get a get an indication of uh, what are mega trends and. What sort of time frame, look back period does one need to sort of hang around those mega trends? Um, <clears throat> I think that's all good. Reading the Market Wizards books, listening to this podcast, all good stuff. Of course, <laughs> I I agree with uh, what Moritz and, and Jerry said, uh, Carl. Um, I would be a little bit skeptical with what you find on the internet. Of course, I think there's uh, uh, a lot of um, you know, there's a lot of good stuff, but there's also a lot of bad stuff. So just be a little bit critical about that. Um, and uh, yeah, try a few different uh, few different ty uh, types of uh, trend-following models. Breakout for sure. Maybe moving averages, maybe combine them. See what, what it uh, looks like. Um, 
completely agree with Jerry in terms of trading small. I think that's super important. But then I would also, and I think we brought it up in a previous episode, and I, I would all, always caution that it also depends a little bit about what your longer-term plans are because, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong, in my opinion, if you want exposure to trend following, to find just a handful of trend followers or two or three trend followers and invest with them and keep doing what you do uh, in your day job. So, um, you know, if your passion is trading and you want to make a career out of that, for sure. But, you know, it's we don't always, we don't all have to be trend followers. We can also u- make use of those who are already there. That would be my other uh, comment. Let's jump on to the next one from Paul, all the way from Canada. Um, he starts out with a small criticism of the show because he says, you know, um, I continue to really enjoy the show. Absolutely excellent stuff. My only criticism is that I wish the episodes were even more frequent than weekly. So that's a very nice uh, criticism <laughs> to receive. Thank you for that, Paul. And then he says, two related questions. Managed futures is inherently volatile, not a bad thing. But my sense is that this makes it hard for investors to stick with uh, the strategy for long term, for the long term. How are you able to help investors in determining what level of volatility slash allocation is right for them in the long term, knowing that they might overestimate their ability to stomach vol in the short term? The other th- question is: Have you uh, personal volatility preferences? Has has your personal volatility preferences changed over time. Let me kick off this one, Paul, um, because maybe we have a little bit of a unique thing uh, going on on our side. Maybe not. I don't know. But actually what happens if you come to us uh, as a new investor, I'm not talking about institutionals, but I'm talking about people who, uh, individual investors who want to invest with Don. Actually, they all have to have a call with either uh, our owner, Marty Bergen, or our CEO, uh, James Daly. And in that, we call it a qualification call because we want to tell people that they should expect to lose money. They should expect certain drawdowns, um, uh, you know, and, and, and so that there is no surprise when they occur because they will occur. Um, so... You know, I think I think that's important actually too, because you don't you don't as a firm you don't really want investors who are not a good fit for you either. Um, so that's something that I think has been practiced uh, at our shop for uh, yeah all the time that uh, that we've been in business, so to speak. So uh, so then maybe that's one way of determining what the true level for an investor is in terms of how much they can stomach. Uh, in terms of personal preference, um, I'm not so sure that my personal preference has changed over time. I'm very comfortable with the strategy. I've been invested in it for you know almost 30 years, uh, one way or another. So I don't think my personal preference has changed. Um, but I will say one thing, <laughs> and maybe I would love to hear what Jerry, uh, what you think and Moritz. Um, I don't think going through drawdowns are becoming particularly easier uh, with time. Funnily enough, they feel as painful as I remember them, you know, 20 years ago. Anyways, those are my thoughts. Yeah. <coughs> Hashtag hate the drawdown. Um, <laughs> that's for sure. That's never nice. But um, I actually like like uh, the way you do it at done with those qualification calls. I think it is important to um, to be very explicit uh, and open and honest and transparent with 
investors about, uh, you know, the periods where uh, trend following won't work. And there are so many. And, you know, as we know, investors tend to come and invest at highs when everything's looking great. And, you know, when you do that, you kind of like forget about the bad periods that may have happened uh, in the past, you know, in the, in the prior month because you were coming out of a drawdown. But it's important to, um, you know, to, to give investors that picture of, you know, we're going to be in drawdown most of the time. Most of the time that thing is going to fail. We'll have long periods of feeling unhappy about it. Um, and at the end of that, you know, long-term game, we hope to come out ahead. And thus far, we've, we've managed to do that. But the, the, the path from A to B is not going to be an easy one. So they really have to understand that. It's, I think it's, it's great what you do there. And then I was when you started the question, I was um, thinking about the uh, sarcastic uh, quote or blog that Clifford Nas wrote this, this week. Did you, did you see that on the fees and, and the, uh, no, the infrequent? No, I missed that. Okay, that's really great. So, so Cliff, being a funny guy, I wrote a blog this week um, um, speaking about smooth returns and that he's going to do a S-M-O-O-T-H fund. And he's going to charge more money for that, a higher performance fee, much higher management fee. And investors will just absolutely love it because it's going to be so smooth. He's going to publish NAVs once a year, something like that, right? There you go. So all the liquidity, all the transparency, just, you know, out of the window. Nobody needs that. Let's just become illiquid and and black boxy and, uh, you know, charge higher fees and have happier clients. You know, I'm sure he meant that in a very sarcastic way, but that's also one of the ways, um, you know, it's it's easier to stick with it is if you don't look at the thing every day. You know, I mean, of course I do, we do, because we trade that system. Um, but if you're an investor and you really are in for that for, you know, multiple years and you've had that qualification call and you go like, yes, I will, you know, stick to that for years and years, then really, you know what, there's no need, uh, to be following PL on a daily basis. There's no need to follow it on a monthly basis. Just let it run. Yeah. And I think that, um, <clears throat> going beyond the pain of the drawdown, <clears throat> it's just going to be so great when you... Uh, find somebody who loves trend following as much as you do. You know, that's sort of what Dimensional Fund Advisors does. They make sure that these people drink the Kool-Aid and you can't even be an investor unless you uh, believe in this buy and hold and uh, passive small, medium stock approach. And I think, okay, you're not going to have as big a business. You know, you're not going to have as much assets under management, but the time and energy and heartache that you get by a misalignment of people and then they act like well i don't really understand it you need to educate me more you know it's totally uh bs you know <clears throat> there's nothing better or simpler it's easier to understand uh the basics of than what we do and uh that's true yeah and i think that um you know we just have to not uh, be worried that um we you know we don't we're not uh, we don't have a business that's going to raise billions and billions of dollars we're putting other things first have your personal uh, kind of uh, tolerance uh, for uh, volatility i think it was paul last uh, changed jerry over time i mean i think so only to the degree that um the high volatility that i used to more volatility one and a half to two times more than i had when i first started it just creates anxiety for everyone 
Right. Um, but nothing, uh, no one is in more control of the volatility than the CTAs. So if his perception or his investments uh, are with CTAs that, as he said, sort of obviously have more volatility, uh, then that's their fault or his fault. But um, who is in more control than we are? You know, it's really difficult for a stock manager to say, I have a big stock fund and I only have two thirds invested. You know, no, they have to invest all the money in these stocks. And so they're at the mercy of the volatility of the stock market. Whereas we have uh, lots more diversification. It, we just don't have, as we've said before, we just don't have CTAs out there saying, I'm targeting eight and a half percent. No, we don't have that. Um, <clears throat> and so, and then most of the time, our our expected return based upon our leverage would be is much higher than that. And then most of the time, though, our volatility is really normal and nice. And then all of a sudden, uh, everything gets correlated and we have more of a volatility than a stock portfolio, which from the get-go, that's going to be highly correlated. But um, we're very much in control. In fact, we even have vol targeting CTAs who every day or week or whatever go in and adjust that vol to a target. So uh, there is no reason to, um, not saying it's not true, I'm just saying there's no reason for it to be true that you should be able to find CTAs, managed futures who target 8% or 10% and even vol target and wow, you know, there you go. And currencies, commodities, stocks and bonds, longs and shorts, now it's gonna be way less volatile than, uh, or the drawdown, you know, the eight, eight divided by 50, about an 8% return and over 50% drawdown. That's just not going to be that possible for a CTA, maybe eight and 20 or eight and 25, you know. That's true. Very true. Well, I think we're going to get into more of this stuff because the next uh, set of questions come from Antonio. Uh, and Antonio starts out with some very kind comments. We appreciate that, Antonio. Thanks very much. Question number one. How do you know that your current vault target doesn't risk ruin, but is still worthwhile if historical worst drawdowns are irrelevant? All right. Anyone wants to tackle that one first? Definitely the historical uh, worst drawdowns might be low. So um, pay attention to them. Of course, they, they are out. A, a data point, but that don't um, don't think that it can't get worse. But I think the answer is you don't really know. Uh, regardless, <clears throat> certainly if your average P and L per day is plus or minus five percent, you know you're in some dangerous territory. Let's say, but even if your average P and L per day is fifty basis points plus or minus, you know maybe. But I think the the best rule here is that um, you know. To even even uh, that you've done, you're a really expert at backtest, and you're a really great math person. So you you think you have your risk of ruin down. You know, just continue to to exercise the ultimate in in risk management and risk control, which is that at certain points, down ten, down fifteen, down twenty, uh, whatever you decide to make uh, position reductions. So to the old turtle rule was if you're down 10, you cut everything back by 20%. <clears throat> so you're, um, it was a different era, a different vol target. You know, uh, we were making 200% a year and with really short-term systems. But that mentality of if I'm down five, I'm going to reduce risk faster. 
And as I start making money, I'm going to put the risk back on slower. So that I think is <clears throat> don't rely upon your risk of ruin calculations uh, only. When you say that, Jerry, you uh, you mean uh, you're, you're trading a a fixed notional account size, and then if you have a drawdown, say you you know you're trading a 10 million notional account, then you would reduce the size of that account. Right. I mean, <clears throat> it's if I had on you know 50 contracts of soybeans, I might get out of you know a third of them or 20 percent of yeah. them, and so or reduce the trade level. Yeah. So it's all going to come out to be the same, but. Um, you know, once again, I think have this rule. You're losing money. I need to be on the defensive. I need to preserve capital. Uh, it may be a 5% drawdown for you and me. It may be 25 for someone else and those type of clients. But never uh, think that you've got this great system. You've, had, you've done this great back test. The world's going to look uh, the same as it has in the past. And I have nothing to worry about. And I think that's where disaster can come in. You have a positive mm -hmm. game. You'll eventually win. Just stay in the game and trade small and use risk management. And you know, you're going to come out of the hole slower. And you're going to, every time I've ever cut back, it's uh, the, my position size and my trading uh, <clears throat> during a drawdown, it, it never works. The computer says, don't do it. It doesn't work. And it's always been at the lows. And I think that you should have an approach and a leverage to where it's very infrequent. You know, you don't want to do this once a week or once a month. You want to do it every two or three years, possibly, uh, when the markets get really poor uh, or, you know, really choppy and performance is low. Um, it's much better to trade smaller than to have to do this frequently. Yeah, and I, I would just add to that. It is true that we often say that our worst drawdown could be in front of us, or probably is in front of us. But I don't think um, Antonio would go as far as saying that historical worst drawdowns are irrelevant. I don't think they are. I think they do tell you something about your uh, system and uh, and 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 so on and so forth, and the risk levels you're running. But uh, it's a good question. And uh, I think it was a great answer that you, you got from uh, Jerry on that. Um, I'm going to go on to the next question because there's quite a few of them. So maybe you want to uh, tackle this one more. It's, uh, we'll see. If asked about your future trend-following strategy performance expectations, how would you derive annualized expected rates of return over the next 5, 10, 40, 100 years? <laughs> <laughs> right. So there's um, <clears throat> this is a question... Um, I've been asked quite a few times is, um, is uh, what do you expect to make going forward? How much money do you think is in this? How much money do you think we can make next year? And what is going to be the annualized rate of return for the next five years? Things like this. And, you know, none of us can sit there and say, well, I think it's going to be eight or 12 or anything like that. I mean, the answer is, I don't know. That is the only fair answer that we can give. But there is a but, right? And I always, you know, I, I came to the point where I say, well, looking at the the way I've traded that, looking at the life track record, looking at the back test, looking at all the data that I have, and looking at the way the system performs right now, the system has performed in the past, I have no reason to believe that any major item of that system is broken. I have no statistical um, um, you know, backing to assume that trend following 
markets and the way I do it is no longer going to work in the future. I may have to evolve certain things, but there's absolutely nothing telling me right now that it stopped working and it stopped working for good. So as a result of that, I tell people that I expect my system to perform on average just in the way it did in the past with all the volatility around it, but just with, you know, the historical rates of return. I think the other thing to add to that is that the only thing we really control, and, and Jerry talked about that earlier today, it's not the return side. What we can control is the risk. And I think no, not many CTAs that I come across at least talk much about, you know, expected returns, et cetera, et cetera, because as, as Moritz just said, we, we know we don't really know. Um, but we do know how we manage our risks and uh, or the risk of the portfolio. And so I think that's really where most of our focus goes. Um, and also, I mean, again, time frame is a is so important when it comes to determining what's your the performance of one investor versus another. I mean, imagine you have two investors and they start, you know, um, you know, at the same time and one stays for 10 years and the other one stays for 11 years. But at the at the point of the but the year eleven turns out to be a down thirty percent return uh, or or year clearly they're going to have very different overall return uh, because of that event. Um, but so yeah, no, I would I would you know, add, you know just say that I think Moritz is right. I mean, we don't uh, really talk much about and we don't know what uh, our future returns uh, are going to look like. But of course, we we look at uh, our historical track records, and that's the only thing we can document yeah yes and i think the the only way we can look at that is by looking at the numbers and the data and the stats and we're being asked about the um you know the drawdowns is your worst drawdown ahead of you and we would say well you know given given enough time on that lovely planet earth and enough time to trade the system the worst drawdown is probably ahead of us because um we'll consume more data we'll do many more trades than we've done in the past and then many more than than are included in the back test even so statistically the likelihood is that the, the worst run is ahead of us the same can be said for the you know uh a period of say flat performance you know three four five years of bad trend following performance which people think that you know we've had i mean yeah sure um great but uh you know that there could be 10 in the data set in 50 years from now it, you know it goes for all the stats of the trading system not just the worst drawdown um, and it, you know, in the same way, it does go for the returns. So it's, I think, you know, I always, you know, want to look at that from from that side of things, and also, you know, speak to to people that ask me that question, answer that question in that way. And let me just add two things more. Actually, uh, thinking about it, when when I hear you speak, um, one. All of this can be said about any strategy in the world. I mean, you know, how do you come up with any, you know, real expected uh, uh, return in the future? I don't think you can. And if anybody told you that, oh, yeah, I'm sure I'm going to be, you know, delivering 10% return in the next 10 years, I probably wouldn't uh, pay much attention to that. Yeah. We can only make what the markets give to us, yeah. but we can control our risk. Absolutely. Do you have anything uh, you want to add to this one, Jared? Do you want to tackle the next one? There are plenty to come next one okay if you don't and this is also antonio if you don't have an expected annualized rate of return why bet at all that the unexpected moves or major trends will pay for the whipsaw over inflation and transaction costs 
Well, I don't think those two go together. You know, I could, definitely I can answer <clears throat> the second part, but mm-hmm. why would that go together? That if I don't, if I can't predict what I'm, I'm going to make right. in the future, sure. then why play for home runs and strikeouts? I mean, I don't, does that go together? I mean, correct me when I'm when I'm finished, but I think uh, it's safer. That's all. We're taking. That's that's all. That's the only reason. It's we're using a systematic price only approach. And we taken, we're taking small losses, massive diversification, longs and shorts. And the computer says, all right, you're right. You'll make money. You, you do have a safe capital preservation way going here. But the problem is you got to make all of your money on very large trades. Oh, no. Larger than that. Even larger. Yeah. Oh, what a bummer. So that's what the computer says. That's what we've all done. That's We've all profited from it. Everything we have, well, at least for me, is... Um, Due to that, the homes, the cars, everything. So that's why we do it. it. The computer says it works, and we've experienced it. And I would add to that and say, well, just because we don't, you know, verbally say that, oh yeah, we expect our strategy to deliver this kind of return going forward, it doesn't change the historical data and what it has done for us, and the fact that it has delivered better returns than inflation and transaction costs, et cetera, et cetera. So I just think it's just because we are maybe prudent about the fact that we don't want to be, um, you know, uh, making forecasts that we have actually no real, um, you know, um, that we're not able to to um, predict with any certainty. Um, but it doesn't change the, and it doesn't change the, and you can go one step further down, Antonio, and you can just think about the concept you know, why do you want to do trend following in the first place? Well, we do it mainly, I think, because we believe that, um, you know, markets moving up will attract buyers and market mo- moving down will attract sellers. And these behavioral uh, tendencies uh, or biases that, that we all have as human beings, we generally don't believe that they will change. And as long as they don't change, there will be major trends from time to time. And... What we've seen in the past, you know, Jerry's got, you know, 30 plus years and had done 40 plus years of, of real evidence of of that paying far more than inflation and transaction costs. So why wouldn't we believe it? And maybe, I, mean, I don't know, maybe he was uh, saying that um, you're not willing to be bold and forecast, then maybe you don't really believe. <laughs> mm. I, I don't know. I'm trying to no, no. Yeah. usually try to figure out, I have to spend way more time figuring out uh, what his questions actually mean versus uh, my answer. I right. get my answer in like 30 seconds. After 35 years, I don't know. It doesn't take me a sure. long time for an answer. It may not be right. He's definitely not going to agree with it. But uh, I okay. do it because it's safe. It's safe. And uh, as I've said many times before, what part of what we do are you willing to give up to make more money? Uh, large losses? No. Lack of diversification? No. Discretionary, not systematic? No. Uh, I'm not willing to give up any of those things. Losing money, a little bit of money over a long period of time, churning away, making a little bit, losing a little bit, that's the worst that it's going to be. And I still have an opportunity to maybe have a good year every now and then. That's a good bet for me. I'm just too uh, risk averse to eliminate uh, parts of what trend following offers. Mm. 
There is one more question from Antonio in this email, so uh, I will uh, take that uh, and we'll see if we can uh, we, if we can answer that. If you believe in equal probability or expected analyzed returns is unchanged regardless of a drawdown or a run-up in trend-following equity curve, wouldn't it suggest new equity curve highs are extremely difficult to achieve after a major drawdown? For example, if trend following has annualized returns of 8% and trend following falls 45%, uh, why would I expect trend following to continue to have an 8% annualized return from the trough as opposed to a higher annualized return? Conversely, after a run-up in 2008 or 15, why should I expect 8% annualized returns and not less than average? Well, clearly you know, clearly returns can change from your entry point. I think that's uh, very uh, natural to expect that if you buy the drawdown, which luckily a lot of investors do, um, they probably do get a higher return than the long-term average if they do it right and vice versa. If some people trim their exposure after a big run-up and uh, put it back after a correction, I think you can get a higher return than your long-term average. Uh, I'm not sure whether that is exactly your question, but but uh, you know, clearly the the long-term average or analyzed returns that that trend followers deliver includes the ups and the downs. But if you time it, and you're lucky, not that we, I would never uh, suggest anyone to try and time trend following. I think it's incredibly difficult. But if you do and you get it right you should expect a higher annualized average return, but vice versa, if you get it wrong, it will be lower. It sounds like a math question, and uh, which I'll usually defer to people on my staff who are math experts. But uh, I know the answer, is, I know, I think I know what the answer is, but I don't, but I would explain it in, in more of a layman's terms in that, uh, you know, the, in, at the bottom of the 2008 stock market, you know, what were the chances that the market would have the rally that it's had since the, through 2018, you know, like zero? Yeah, everyone said, no, there's just no way. This, this would have been the question. How can we expect? Well, you know what? It all happened. And I have had, in the midst of drawdowns, I've had people call me up and send me emails and say, you'll never make money again. Even after 5, 10, 15, 20 years of new equity highs all the time, uh, this, is the, this is the comment. How are you going to, 8%, my gosh, 90% of the time, I would be thankful for an 8% drawdown or whatever. I think that's what he said. But I, wow. You know, when you play a positive game and you're eventually going to win over time because you have an edge, you can't discount the power of that. No, no. And of course, uh, the same argument goes for equity investments, right? If you bought the 2008 or 2009 low in equities, your returns for the past 10 years would be higher than the average. I mean, it makes sense. So, This question is usually something along the lines of some sort of trick math question. Like, if you flip a coin... And you get ten tails in a row, you know. Are you ever is heads ever going to be able to catch up to fifty fifty? I know the answer is yes. <laughs> so I think that's kind of what he's saying. You'll never catch up. Yeah, we, right. we will catch up. Yeah. Good stuff. Thanks very much for the questions, uh, Antonio. Uh, let's move on here. Uh, Brian sends in a question. Um, this is more of a business question. Uh, maybe Jerry will comment. He says, how does the CTA choose a company to sell their investment, such as a mutual fund? Are there only select mutual fund firms who will consider doing it? 
Both Don and Chesapeake do this. Curious for any similarities or differences? Yeah, that's that's uh, outside the scope of. Uh, not sure how to answer that one. That's find a mutual fund partner that uh, likes your performance. Uh, but uh, yeah, that yeah, yeah. No, I think the true uh, answer here, Brian, is that there are actually not that many uh, mutual fund companies that run platforms where. You can put in a, a CTA strategy uh, per se, and then successfully uh, market it um, through their network, et cetera, et cetera. So it probably comes down to a handful of firms that you can go to, and obviously Jerry chose one, we chose another one, um, and um, and the same goes for you. Have another question about how you implement it. Some people use swaps, et cetera, et cetera. This is a little bit technical, but in our case, it has to do with the fact that we don't charge a management fee. So in order to get a performance fee, uh, one of the ways you can do that is uh, using a swap structure inside your mutual fund uh, that uh, that is allowed. Um, other people do it differently. Um, so I don't think it makes a big difference which way you, you choose to do. Um, I do think it makes a difference in terms of what company you partner with. If you're looking for a partner uh, to sell your uh, mutual fund, there's a big difference between their capabilities in terms of raising assets and 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 so on and so forth. Um, but no, I mean, I think that's probably as much as we can help you with on, on that one. And uh, there's a question from Sam or Samuel. You've all discussed correlation in the past, but what level of diversification based on correlation is enough on, uh, on your minds? Certainly, if you have three or 30 assets that have a, a simple aggregated and average correlation between uh, all of them uh, of 0 0.0 or 0.8, this isn't great. Ideally, I think the end goal is to have this number to be zero or as close to that as possible. But what do you think the norm is uh, or the minimum needed to have some level of comfort with your portfolio? Um, then he goes on to say, secondly, Jerry has mentioned in the past he does not adjust his position size based on ongoing volatility during the trade and that he's willing to accept much more volatility during the trade as a, as a bracket, as a winner. He has also said that he will trade smaller uh, in a drawdown, uh, meaning if the standard risk is 50 basis points, he would advocate maybe risking 40 basis points once you enter a drawdown of some size. Does this mean only two things uh, will really cause him to adjust the total position slash risk of a trade, a drawdown or a change in account equity value? That is true. Uh, losses and like I said earlier, reducing your positions and your uh, new, new, new positions that are coming up uh, when you're losing money is a good idea. I do think that uh, extreme vol targeting is um, makes you take smaller profits, and so you have to trade a little bit larger, so your average loss will be a little bit higher. I do think that uh, if a market uh, I was in a dollar trade, dollar index trade a few years ago, and the volatility was 10 times as high at the end of the trade than it was when I put it on. So I think if uh, you have this position like um, natural gas or um, <clears throat> uh, some of these positions get crazy, volatile, parabolic. If you want to scale those things back after you've made tons of money, I don't think that's a problem necessarily. It's just scaling things back because you're getting a little nervous. It's not like great mathematical genius, just 
So yeah, I think that that's, you know, you kind of want to allow the trend following to do its thing and uh, be bold with your winners and cowardly with your losses. Yeah. Just to answer your first question also, um, uh, Samuel, um, I mean, I think in terms of correlation and finding markets that make sense, I think sometimes also just a common sense approach um, would be a good idea and, and clearly just combining uh, different sectors uh, with each other. Uh, and maybe not being too focused on what's the correlation because the correlation will change anyways. And as as Jerry mentioned earlier, there's been you know examples in the past where suddenly one market within the same sector, you know, just takes off. I mean, we saw it last year with net gas, for example, and we see it on a regular basis. I would say so. Don't be too hung up on that. But clearly, you know, you need more than three assets to get diversification in your portfolio. Uh, I would say once you get past 25 or so uh, across different sectors, you're starting to get uh, into a, a reasonable zone. Uh, often I, I've seen um, that managers who get to sort of 50, 60 different markets across uh, all sectors, you know, the, the added uh, diversification benefit uh, from keeping adding uh, markets will obviously uh, decrease uh, somewhat uh, once you get past that point. But I'm not here uh, saying including some of the newer markets. I mean, there are newer markets that have come along where you could probably get some further diversification. And then finally, you have la one last question, and then I'd love to hear Moritz's thoughts on this, actually. You, you talk about how often should one adjust positions based on account equity, and you quote that you think that we do it um, on a daily basis at Don, um, and that is correct. I mean, we do uh, take into account what is the the uh, uh, the total AUM we trade on a, on a daily basis, and it doesn't mean we change position on a daily basis. We have some thresholds that uh, that we need to hit before, otherwise you make too many small uh, trades. But um, some people do it monthly, some people do it daily. I don't think there's a right or wrong. And I don't think, frankly, that it makes a big difference uh, in, in performance-wise. Great question. I think on the uh, position sizing, um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, open positions, they, um, they tend to stay unchanged until, you know, they exit. Um, my new positions, they will react to uh, a change in the account size or the net liquidation value of the account. So if I'm in a drawdown, if I'm losing money, then uh, my next position is uh, going to be smaller, assume same volatility, same ATR, than, uh, than the previous position that was taken on at a higher um, account value. So that happens automatically. Um, and I'm fine with that. And um, then, you know, the diversification question, I must say, I can't get enough of it. And um, sure, you know, you can mathematically show that after the 15th or 20th assets, uh, the diversification benefit starts to decrease. And I agree with you, uh, Niels, that, you know, we can apply a common sense approach to things. Of course, this is true if you're adding, you know, say you have 50 markets and you're adding another equity index to a list of already, say, 25 equity indices, then, you know, potentially the added value, the added diversification benefit of that market is going to be relatively small. Maybe it's still worthwhile doing it, you know, depends depends on the, the market in question. But if you can find, you know, tradable instruments, um, which are, you know, very independent from the rest of your portfolio, some of the newer markets, it may be glass or eggs or, you know, power in France, power in, you know, Spain. Those are markets, by the way, you know, power in Spain is a tradable market. 
I, I find that to be uh, very uncorrelated to other things I have in the portfolio, uncorrelated to the energy uh, spectrum. So that market is very valuable for me to have uh, as part of my portfolio. And I don't care if it's the uh, the 80th market or the 90th market. I still want to have that in because the more markets I trade, the greater, you know, I'm, I'm spreading my bets across a larger set of markets and the greater the probability that, you know, just one of those markets that I happen to be trading and I'm taking all the trades, one of those markets will become the runaway winner for the year. So, so I like thinking in, in that way and not kind of like, you know, closing down the portfolio uh, at a certain level of markets um, saying that, you know, uh, well, it's diversified enough. I don't need more. I, I always want one more. Can't get enough for the diversification, I must say. Um, so yeah, that's that's my view on that. And that's where, you know, I think I also, uh, you know, when I look at what I do, a lot of the, you know, research goes into that as well. Maybe also not just in adding markets, but, you know, the way you trade markets, trade spreads, for instance, you know, does that do something to your portfolio? You may be doing that with you know, markets you already have in your portfolio, but, you know, create synthetic time series that um, all of a sudden start start to do something different in your portfolio. So um, it's uh, it's an interesting topic. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, most of the people who are trading 100 markets, you know, they're trading cotton, sugar, cocoa, coffee, Nat gas emissions, cattle, hogs with one unit, and then crude, heating oil, and gas are one third of a unit or something like that. They're not trading, you know, uh, all of these 100 with equal risk. They're recognizing, you know, Jerry said heating oil doubled twice and crude sat there. So do I want to choose crude or heating oil? Hey, why don't I just trade a little bit of each? I'm not going to trade it as large as cotton, which is not correlated with anything. So I think that makes sense. There's no cost. There's absolutely zero cost. I mean, you got to put in an extra order, but I'm obsessed with um, diversification. No one is more obsessed than me. Uh, start trading your single stock futures, start thinking about synthetic markets, then come talk to me. Um, shorts, oh my gosh, we add so much by trading shorts. Uh, all of these markets are positively correlated. So uh, uh, 10 longs, it's more risk than five longs and five shorts, every market, any market. Um, so another thing that's very important. Um, and I like to keep my trade level the same throughout the year. I want to be placing these bets every day, the same bet on January 1st, risking the same amount all the way through December 31st. So, and I'm going to include the profits at a slow rate, um, reduce, reduce uh, the trade level based on losses much quicker. So I, uh, there's a randomness of changing the trade level frequently or in big chunks that uh, can overwhelm the positive expectation of the trades themselves. So I want to not allow that randomness to be too material. Um, and I really want to sit at that blackjack table every day of the year, you know, risking a, a $1,000 or 5000 or whatever it is for every hand. So my edge is what's predominantly going to determine my performance. Great answers. Let's jump to a question from uh, Brian and then I want to close with a question from Seth. And then I want to talk about the 
article uh, on Bloomberg before we uh, before we wind down for uh, for this week. Um, Brian says some very nice uh, comments in the beginning, and then he goes on. Most recently, sold Waxman observed, and it was. Uh, reinforced by Meb Faber, that investors have a double standard for returns on futures returns compared to equities. As three of the best and brightest trend followers in the industry, in your experience, why is this the case? Moritz, any thoughts on your side? Uh, I'll let Jerry start on that one. Thanks. <laughs> That's a tough one. I mean, I think in, in different ways we've brought this up Um but let's try to not to blame it on others. Like, like I was saying earlier, maybe um, volatility is higher. We're charging higher fees. Stocks are, you just sit back, relax, and the S&P is uh, the best performer. You're not paying anything. Uh, you understand it better. You think you do. Yeah, it's, it's a, uh, you like it more uh, because it's more familiar. All your friends own it. And so market's down five. We're all down five. Uh, probably not a hundred percent the client's fault. Uh, I would say, obviously, even though I have a tendency to sound that like it is. I mean, I think the double standard. I think comes from a couple of uh, different sides. I think um, whether it was um, Mep who talked about it, uh, I'm not entirely sure. But I think the fact that futures inherently involves some level of leverage compared to what you put down as margin and the contract size you trade, it has always had kind of a bad rap with many types of investors, especially if you don't really know um, much about it. So it sounds more risky. Uh, and of course, in, you know, 10, maybe, maybe more than that, 15, 20 years ago, the word derivatives and futures were really not very popular um, in, in, in the media. I think that has changed. I think more people now understand that the value of what futures, uh, the, the, the role that we play when we trade futures, the liquidity it provides and all of that. Um, but I think it is a problem. I think, and I think it's this home bias uh, we, we often have. I think the more people uh, know about equity, so they feel more uh, at home about that. And therefore, it's, it is a double standard when it comes to futures. It's meant to, as you know, that we should be doing much better. And I think, as Jerry often alludes to, we are doing better. No doubt about it. You know, we're not an 8% strategy with a 50% drawdown. Um, you know, so, 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 um, we just have to continue to uh, educate people uh, about these things. Um, but you're you're absolutely right, um, Brian, that it is um, it is a bit uh, difficult to understand why uh, people treat it differently. But I think the financial media, not to blame anyone, as, as Jerry started saying, not that I really want to blame anyone, but I think the media plays a very important role in pushing equities as as one. You know, and bonds, for that matter, as uh, asset classes that are, uh, you know, everyone should own, uh, and things that are a little bit different, uh, with much more skepticism, if I can put it that way. Any thoughts, Morris? Or do you want to take the next one? Take the next one. All right, it's something we've actually talked a little bit about uh, earlier today. So, um, but anyway, Seth has uh, a couple of questions. I'll take question number one today, Seth, and I'll do the other one next week. Uh, he says, um, "You guys have mentioned on several occasions when talking about diversification that there are something like fifteen unique market groups or sub asset classes. I would be interested to hear you guys go over them and sh and and show uh, on on the show sometime. Sorry about that." Thanks for a great show. So, 
do you want to quickly sort of talk a little bit about some of the um, sectors as such as we see them in in our industry? Yeah, sure. Um, so, um, you know, let's start with with equities. Um, Jerry's trading the the single stocks. Uh, Niels, you and I were looking at the equity indices. You know, that is that is one bucket. Um, I've seen trend following systems that also uh, include um, equity sectors, like there's the financial sector, there's the building and materials sector, there's, you know, products that you can trade there. So this is the equity complex, if you will. Then um, as far as currencies go, you have uh, the major pairs against the dollar, you have the crosses uh, around the world, the crosses may be a bit more difficult to trade, there's some available that you know, you can trade, but um, some other ones, say the Colombian peso against uh, the Hungarian forint, you're not going to be finding, you know, a futures contract on that. So you would have to trade that spot or OTC, but you know, that's currencies. Um, the fixed income and interest rate uh, area is um, uh, government bonds, uh, government bond futures of different uh, durations or maturities. So you have, uh, you know, very short term bonds, you know, one to two year, five year, 10 year, 30 year bonds. Um, you have short term interest rates like uh, Euribor, LIBOR, the euro dollar, all of that. Um, and then the commodities, this is where you know, you can't really say it's commodities because, you know, the commodities are, you have agricultural products, um, you know, the, the livestock products, you have energies, you have base metals, you have precious metals, you have power, um, you have materials, there's, you know, emissions, um, all sorts of very great diversifying markets uh, that you, uh, you know, I recommend people have a look at and including their portfolios, um, the grains, the softs. I mean, this is uh, this is a big, big and very important area um, to add in a, in a transform portfolio. So when you uh, sum it all up, um, you know, it's it's not that difficult, really not difficult to uh, to uh, to find more than 50 markets uh, to include in a trend following uh, system. And, you know, as we've heard before, if you want to, you know, include um, the crosses and OTCs and become really detailed, then uh, you can, you know, do it with 200 markets. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I sent you an email, by the way, Seth, uh, just to reply more specifically about this as well. So uh, hopefully you got uh, the answer you're looking for. Um, thanks to everyone, by the way, for for the questions. And, and as I said, do keep them coming. Uh, just send them to info at toptradersonplug.com. And then we will get to them. Um, I'm sorry that we are there's a few ones we're skipping today and we'll get to them uh, next week. Now, the reason why we're doing that is because we want to maybe just um, add a little bit of uh, our uh, thoughts to this uh, article uh, on Bloomberg um, that uh, came out a couple of days ago. One of Wall Street's most popular trading strategies is now failing. And uh, I'm sure you guessed it. Uh, it is um, trend following that uh, Nishant Kumar has written about on March 1st. 6 o'clock CET, it was released. Um, I think we all skimmed it. Um, I think maybe you, Jerry, tweeted a few things from it. Um, but of course, it's um, it's a popular headline. We've seen it before uh, in different shades. 
uh, trend following is dead. Now it's failing. Um, what what were your thoughts about uh, Mr. Kumar's article? I have a, a list, <clears throat> so um, very prepared on this one. Uh, nice. Uh, he one of the, oh, my first thing on my list. I sort of went in order. Um, quote: Turns out the algorithms behind so-called trend following quants are rather primitive. And suffer from many years for from many of the same weaknesses a mortal brain might. I like that. And honestly, I think uh, as I've said many times, I like the word primitive. We we had a list before we went on the air today of all the different explosive words that people have used recently. Um, I don't. I didn't even remember deplorable, but maybe that's next. Uh, <laughs> but. Uh, but I think primitive is good. Uh, primitive yeah. systems are what's needed to have a large sample size. We don't want them to be too primitive, but entry, exit, stop loss, um, you know, we don't, we need our sample size, historical backtest to be large. So I give us an A plus on, on defaulting towards primitive. Um, I, that's a better word than simple. I'm, I'm going to start using that. It's, I like it. Sure. Sure. And of course, in the same paragraph, he goes on to say, uh, they've struggled to react fast enough to the unforeseen side effects of ending a decade of central bank stimulus and even seem to get baffled by U.S. President Donald Trump. And I'm just thinking when I read something like that, I think, you know, unforeseen side effects. I mean, some of these strategies uh, and certainly the firm that I work for, we've done this for almost 50 years. And I can assure you, Mr. Kumar, that there has been many unforeseen things that these models have had to cope with. And I really don't think that uh, what's happening today is something that uh, they won't be able to cope with going forward. Um, but they will do it in the same fashion they've always done, and that is not to create performance in a straight line that I know, of course, a lot of investors would like us to do. Um, but it is simply utopia to think that that's how you can... Uh, survive uh, in uh, in markets for a very long period of time. You can optimize your strategies to make them look safe. In reality, they'll probably come out short uh, in a very bad way at some point. Um, and that is why um, I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, struggling from time to time to react fast enough because in the long term, long-term trend following seems to be doing um, just fine when you expand the time frame a bit what's next on your list uh, jerry um well mm, ctas haven't performed due to trump's tweets i thought that was kind of funny <laughs> i also added uh, my tweet uh, how about global warming so you know tweeting and uh i thought that was just kind of funny that, that that's what he says but to, to to expand upon your point i think the ctas have done very well in surprises, you know, crude going from 90 to 20, yeah. um, very big surprise. Who's, you know, who stayed, uh, who stayed long interest rates when they started approaching ridiculously low levels, CTAs? Why? The trend was up. Mm. Uh, we're well built for surprises. Um, who made money on Brexit? You know, we made a fortune on, Brex on Brexit. Um, who made money when <clears throat> the stocks were rallying and uh, everyone was saying overvalued and value for many, many years. And of course, this is what the strategy is built on. Nothing more than um, the trend and people obviously uh, not agreeing with the trend and being very surprised. So I don't really understand the surprise point of view. Crashes, this has been a problem. Um, 
<clears throat> and it's a problem for most strategies, right? I mean, a crash right. is, is 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 something that is, yeah, the only people who uh, get it right are people who, um, you know, either know something we are, others don't know or just are lucky and get the timing right. And if it's if you can be well positioned before a surprise, then is it a surprise? So everything is a surprise. Every market move that happens or doesn't happen, somebody, everybody is going to be somewhat surprised. Uh, I really don't understand. I mean, you know, there hasn't been lar- uh, long, big uptrends. You know, that is a very short article. You can't use uh, primitive and uh, archaic is another word. These are great, fun, explosive words. He's a writer. He's very talented. I like that. And uh, but it's you know call me and let's have a discussion. Not going to be a good article. Not it's not going to be as fun. It's not going to be the number one trending article on Bloomberg, uh, like like this one was. And the other thing he seems to have a problem with is, but trend followers keep it simple, identifying when to enter and exit trades by backtesting price trends against decades of data. Not sure what's wrong with that actually. Mm-hmm. Any more points on your list that you want to raise? Yeah, I didn't understand how Winton going from 50% to 30%, according to him. I think most people remember Winton saying it was 25%, but um, <clears throat> how that is proof of it being archaic. Uh, those guys are way too smart to trash, put in uh, even 30% trash into their portfolio. They would go to zero or maybe five or 10 just for diversification reasons. But I uh, don't think that was a very good point. Oh, one of my favorite is, uh, I loved this. Uh, uh, even the discretionary pe- managers were having trouble. Even discretionary. Right. <laughs> <laughs> a systematic approach uh, cleans the clock of discretion. There's not that many discretionary <laughs> left. Um, the discretionary managers over the past four or five years have tried to become less discretionary. It's been major headlines. I just think that's kind of funny that a systematic approach uh, uh, gets negatively compared to um, people who are winging it. Yeah, that's true. What about you, Moritz? You're very quiet. Well, quiet because I think just like uh, like you guys, it's uh, not that much to add. Um, um, you know, I, I found it funny when he said uh, even got baffled by what was it? Trump's tweets. I mean, who who doesn't? <laughs> sure. There's not a single strategy out there that you know isn't uh, isn't uh, surprised by by the president's tweets. Um, just you know, nothing you can do about it. You know, I mean, I, I skimmed through it. It's you know one of those things that we've seen again and again. Uh, it's fun to read them uh, and and you know how they want to spin a story out of that. Um, and uh, well, you know, I'm sure trend following is dead. It's over. We should stop doing it. I also like the comment he has where he says it was the crash of early February 2018 that really exposed the limitations of CTAs. It happened unexpectedly after a rally in January, only for markets to bounce back, bounce back days later. Unlike high-frequency traders that can get in and out in, of trades in milliseconds, CTAs are typically programmed to change holding slowly over several days or even months. Look, I mean, I get it. I mean, you know, they they need to write, they need to, uh, you know, create clicks and and probably count the number of downloads at the end of the day, and you know, 
compete for ad dollars and, and all of that. I mean, that's just, an, it's an industry, it's a machine. You know, saying something like this is, I can only, you know, accept it when I, you know, view it through that light, that they're like, they're doing a job. They want to make money writing it that way. Of, of course, I mean, in at the end of January 2018, I mean, guess what? All of the CTAs were long equities. There was no reason to be not long equities. There were we were super long equities because they were trending and they were going up. So sure, I mean, um, then there is that reversal in in February. I mean, what do you expect? Yeah, we're, we're losing money on that on that long position. Um, you know, imagine imagine that reversal hadn't come. You know, and you know we would have had another six, seven, eight months of uh, uptrending equity markets. We would have been superstars, um, but you know, what can I say? Right, yeah, I had another tweet this week where I, for some reason, just blurted out this idea that um, given such a poor return risk profile, that really long equities, you know, I don't think it deserves a place in a portfolio and not a material amount, anyways, uh, from a scientific, evidence-based point of view. Um, who can hold on to these things is that's never kind of part of the performance uh evaluation is that uh you know the the five percent of the people who are going to hold on down you know 55 with most of the money in in uh, passive equities uh in 2008 there's just not that many who can do it so theoretically uh the eight, you know, an eight percent return with unlimited drawdown. We say fifty something. If you go back far enough, it's ninety percent. Um, you know, the problem with uh, not having it is it does work. It does work sometime. So it's not a good bet. It's not something that uh, most people can handle. And yet, uh, when trend following really fails, uh, like. Um, not just the stock market, it, it, many trades where we've natural gas, we've sold the low, and now the current front month is almost back to the highs uh, of that front month. So taking unlimited risk, that will work sometimes. And that's essentially what they're saying. So I just don't think we should be shy about saying that um, it's not something we're willing to do. It's too risky. Mm. Absolutely. And I think as we all agree, these articles, it, they will pop up from time to time, but it would be nice, I think, if some of the people who write them um, would actually, you know, try and understand the strategy before they write, um, because it, to me, at least, it it doesn't seem that evident uh, that in this case, at least. And regardless of what the reality was at the end of uh, 2008 or beginning of 2009, Every, uh, there'll be a lot of people who would stand up today and say, I still believed, I still believed in buy and hold. And uh, this is what it takes to, to get that sure. equity premium. Okay, we're saying the same thing. Yeah. Except with a much better return drawdown profile. Absolutely. Anyway, I'm sure there might be a few more tweets coming uh, in the... Uh in the coming week about uh, this topic or an, an article perhaps. So we'll see what comes of it. Then maybe Mr. Kumar even will be listening to our podcast. Uh, so anyways, uh, I think that concludes our comments, our questions today. Let me just quickly run through uh, where we stand. Now, these performance numbers are actually as of Thursday evening. 
uh, as they always are. And of course, Thursday was the end of February. So there are actually February numbers or estimates. So the beta 50 index ended up plus 50 basis points, down 1.27 for the year. SOCGEN CT index plus 44 basis points, down 1.45 for the year. SOCGEN trend index up uh, 0.9%, down 2.34% for the year. The SOCGEN uh, short-term traders index was down uh, 1.18, uh, down 2.80 for the uh, year. And the bridge alternatives, uh, the flat fee index down 0.14 for the month and down 4.18 for the year. Anything you want to um, add today before we um, wrap up? It's been a long one today, but uh, lots of good questions. So we appreciate that. Happy trading, everyone. Yes, happy trading. I thought you had a new slogan, Jerry. Uh, yeah, it's something. You forgot it already? That. I got to write it down. It's um, <laughs> follow the systems. Follow the system, exactly. Absolutely. Sexier. Let the rules be the guardian angel. On that note, we're going to wrap up this week's conversation. We hope you've enjoyed it. Keep your questions coming by sending them to info at toptradersunplugged.com. Send us a tweet. And of course, make sure you subscribe to the Top Traders Unplugged podcast to be sure to get all the new episodes directly uh, where you listen to podcasts. And if you felt you got some value from today's conversation, please do share it uh, with your like-minded friends um, and followers. Of course, we are always grateful uh, if you would leave us a rating and review. It really does help us and other investors to discover the Systematic Investor Series. From Jerry Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.